Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. The onset of myosinia gravis can be sudden with severe and generalized muscle weakness, but more commonly, symptoms in the early stage of disease are subtle and variable, making it difficult to achieve a diagnosis correctly and quickly. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the current diagnostic and therapeutic guidelines for managing myasthenia gravis. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Yubing Lee join me for today's conversation. Dr. Lee is the head of the Myasthenia Gravis Program in Cleveland Clinic's Neuromuscular Center and Neurological Institute. Yubing, welcome to Neuropathways. Glenn, thank you very much. I've heard myasthenia gravis called the snowflake disease as there can be variability in patients in terms of course, muscle effect, muscles affected, the degree that they are affected. Could you briefly tell us a little bit about myasthenia gravis, common symptoms, presentation, underlying mechanism of action? Myasthenia uh, gravis, myasthenia, the terminology means muscle weakness. Gravis means severe. So that's an old term. Uh, in It has been recognized for about more than 200 years. In the beginning, we could only recognize those people who had a severe symptoms. Now um, we can recognize people who have relatively mild symptoms, sometimes subclinical symptoms. So it's no longer a grave disease. Typically, this is recognized as antibody-mediated disease. We are able to find uh, antibody in about 90 to 95% of patients with myasthenia gravis. Um, the antibody typically affects a component between, uh, at the junction between the nerve and the muscle. So this is a, a sort of autoimmune disease that can occur uh, almost at any agehood from neonates up to patients who are 95, 100 years old. And has the incidence changed over time or just our ability to diagnose it changing? It's both. Both are true. Um, our uh, ability in, uh, to diagnose uh, this disease uh, have improved uh, dramatically. There are many more neurologists available. People, um, not only doctors, but also patients have much more information to look. You can go to you know, Google, uh, Internet. You can, sometimes you can self-diagnose yourself. Um, there are improved tests, more antibody testing. The techniques for diagnosing this disease have improved. So we have better ways, uh, better awareness uh, of this disease. On the other hand, there have been substantial incidence, substantial evidence to suggest that the incidence of myasthenia graves have been increasing over the last uh, 30 years at least. We used to think uh, this is a disease of the young female and older female. It's no longer true. We still see uh, patients predominantly in young females, but we see equally high incidence in older female and older males. So this is becoming a disease of elderly, 
And in the elderly uh, group, I, I would see defined as more than 65 years of age. Uh, the incidence of MD probably has been increased by at least threefold over the last uh, 30 to 40 years. So patients that end up having myasthenia, what would be the common symptoms that you would see in those patients? The uh, myasthenia gravis, uh, most of the patients start with eye symptoms. Typically, it's a droopy eyelid or double vision. Um, about 70% of patients with myasthenia gravis will present this way. Then the remaining 30, uh, 20% will present with what we call the bulbar symptoms. And people have speech problem, people have swallowing difficulties, and then there is about a 10% of people will present with arm weakness, leg weakness, neck weakness. Very rarely we see people starting with breathing difficulty, but most people have eye symptoms to start with. One of the key, key features of myasthenia gravis um, is it's usually not painful and it tends to fluctuate. What I mean by that, it may be, you may be good in the morning, and then you have more symptoms in the evening, or today and tomorrow, they might be different. So let's talk about the typical diagnostic workup. I come see you, I've had uh, a little bit of droopy eyes, maybe a little double vision. What's the diagnostic workup? Typically, you will need a pretty good neurological examination or examination by an eye doctor to make sure that indeed it's an eye muscle problem. There's also a need to uh, figure out whether you have weakness in other body parts, you know, shoulders, legs, hands, you know, neck. So a neurologic examination is necessary. And if the doctor agree that a diagnosis of myasthenia gravis need to be ruled out, the doctor nowadays typically, uh, you know, started with other blood tests, basically looking for antibodies. That's usually a first step. If the antibody coming back negative and doctors may do a test called EMG, you know, as a workup specifically for myasthenia gravis. If the diagnosis of myasthenia gravis is confirmed, everybody will need a chest CT at least one time. There is a less than 10% of people, means one in 10 people with myasthenia gravis will have a tumor in the thymus gland called the thymoma. So everybody with myasthenia gravis will need a chest CT scan. Well, some people, like you said, Glenn, some people present gradually. We do have time to take this test as a stepwise approach. Some people progress pretty fast. In those situations, uh, you might want the EMG first uh, while you draw blood for the antibody because the antibody testing may take sometimes seven to 10 days. The EMG test can give you a diagnosis sometime right away so you can start treatment as soon as possible. And for the EMG test, uh, can I get that around the corner or does it need to be specialized? Do patients need a single fiber EMG or can you do a routine EMG? You really cannot do a routine EMG. Um, these are, in generally, uh, there are two kinds of EMGs specifically for myasthenia gravis. One is called a repetitive nerve stimulation. Um, basically, the technician will give you a series of electric shocks 
to see how your muscle respond. Typically, people with myasthenia gravis, their muscle will fatigue quickly on the electrodiagnostic testing. So that's basically the basis to make a diagnosis of myasthenia gravis. The other um, special test is called a single fiber EMG. It's a very specialized um, uh, EMG technique. Uh, there are you know, less a handful on, uh, of doctors are doing this. In Cleveland Clinic, we only have three physicians doing this right now. It um, requires um, 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 some skills. Even the repetitive stimulation, I would say it requires uh, good technical skills. You, you want it to get done in a lab uh, who, who are familiar with this test. Um, it's not a lab who just do routine EMG. So let's just go back for a second to the antibodies. As mentioned, you know, you can check acetylcholine receptor antibodies. How helpful are the blood tests? The blood tests are very helpful. Basically, when we're looking at a test to help diagnose a disease, we typically pay attention to two numbers, two terms. One is called sensitivity. The other is called specificity. The antibody tests both have fairly high sensitivity and specificity. Um, it's not 100%, but in general, 85 to 90% of the MG patient will have positive antibodies to acetylcholine receptor. Uh, there is additional 5% will be positive to another antibody called MUSK, M-U-S-K, um, sometimes we see false positive, means that you have antibody, but you do not have myasthenia gravis. But these are relatively rare. And, you know, I know when I'm on hospital service, the residents are always excited to give somebody an ice pack test on the eyes uh, if they're a little bit droopy. Have you found that to be very uh, helpful, or is that more just a clinical interest? I would say it's clinical interest. Um, I, I mean, some other doctors might disagree with uh, with me. Um, it is sort of suggestive my senior gravis, but it's um, the sensitivity and specificity um, are not as quite high as the other tests we have talked about. I tend not to do this um, uh, with MG patient. Um, I think it can be misleading at times. And what about uh, current guidelines for therapy? So now we believe they've had the EMG, they've had the antibody test, you've done the good neurologic examination, you feel they have myasthenia gravis. What, do, what about treatment? The treatment in my personal opinion, and uh, uh, it, it really depends on the severity of the disease. I mean, we have people who have myasthenia gravis on, who are intubated because they cannot breathe. I mean, those becoming less and less, and right now I would say less than uh, about 20% of the patient with myasthenia gravis, or less than one in five. Then there are people who have very minor symptoms and they get used to it. And the treatment guideline for you know, a patient with different degree of severity uh, would vary. Uh, you know, for a person with mild symptoms, and sometimes if they are not disabling or not bothersome, you can just watch them without much treatment. If 
they do bother them, you could consider um, starting with very benign medications such as peridostigmine or mastinone. And if this does not help, you start with relatively low dose prednisone. For patients with relatively severe or significant symptoms, even if the patient is not on the ventilator, you begin to consider very aggressive treatment that typically include you know, relatively high dose prednisone and uh, um, other treatments such as intravenous immunoglobulin or IVIG or sometimes plasmapheresis. For patients who have uh, intermediate symptoms, you probably can start with, you know, middle dose, you know, uh, prednisone at the middle dose range, such as 30 or 40 milligram a day. And usually such a treatment will lead to improvement in three, four, five weeks. And then you can gradually taper and see whether the patient's symptom will come back or not. Some people can be kept um, at a very low dose prednisone without um, need for other treatment. Some people will need additional immunotherapy because they cannot come off prednisone or they cannot be started on prednisone. And those are what we call immunosuppressive treatment. As you mentioned, the myasthenia gravis is a snowflake disease. This term is also reflected in its treatment. The treatment can be very different. Different neurologists may prefer different treatment. And it's, it's, it's better to be given a treatment a neurologist is very familiar with. Um, finally, people who have tumor in the thymus gland usually need uh, surgery as a treatment, which usually helps to control the disease as well. Younger patients would typically be who are 60 years old or younger uh, may benefit from removal of thymus glands as well. Any specific medications that patients should avoid? Um, yes, there, there is a very exaggerated list of medications. There are a few antibiotics that could really exacerbate myasthenia gravis, um, but those antibiotics are rarely used nowadays. There are black box warnings on antibiotics such as Ciprol or Levoquin. I'm not so sure how often they truly make the myasthenia gravis worse. Nowadays, we see a lot of newly developed immunotherapy that uh, treat cancer could lead to myasthenia gravis or make myasthenia gravis worse. So, uh, but those are usually very, very specialized situation. Uh, there is an old medication called a penicillin. Uh, we typically recommend people from myasthenia gravis not to use that. Um, from my point of view, Glenn, if a person has unstable myasthenia gravis, then the doctor needs to be cautious about many medications. If the myasthenia gravis is fairly controlled, I'm not so sure there are absolute contraindications, um, uh, especially the commonly used medications. You make me excited when you start talking about oncologic drugs. And of course, you know, you're talking about the immune modulating checkpoint inhibitors 
that can cause a degree of, of uh, neuromuscular junction instability. And in those cases, we usually just stop the medications. Uh, but as you say, with some of your previous treatment therapies, they may be required depending on the degree of the patient. So what about new therapies? Anything exciting on the horizon? Oh, yeah. It's probably, I, I would call this the golden age for um, clinical research on myasthenia gravis. We have never experienced such a surge of uh, uh, new potential drugs, potential therapies for myasthenia gravis. Um, there are many, at least probably between five to seven being studied right now as a treatment, mostly for generalized myasthenia gravis. They can be problem. There are a few kinds. Um, you know, one is uh, you know complement inhibitor therapy. It's basically the complement activation is ha, has been proven to be an integral part of the myasthenia gravis. One of the FDA approved product, eclizumab, is a complement inhibitor. So that has been available since 2017 uh, for the treatment of myasthenia gravis. Due to the associated cost, and also not everybody responds to that. So it has been pretty much reserved for patients who have significant or refractory myasthenia gravis. Another uh, class that is quite quite active is uh, the neonatal FC receptor therapy. And this pathway basically tried to block the recycling of the immunoglobulin, including the antibodies for mycenae gravis. Um, preliminary data suggests this class is also fairly effective, but these have not been approved um, uh, by FDA yet. And then there are other um, uh, classes of immunotherapy being studied. So it's, it's quite an exciting uh, area uh, for the um, research on mycenae gravis. So anything else that you'd like to share with the audience that I haven't asked you uh, about treating myasthenia gravis or have we covered it? Well, for, for patient-wise, I can tell you is if you have a disease, you probably needed to um, find a doctor who are more or less familiar with this disease and get your disease stabilized. And then you can follow up with your family doctor or you know, other uh, healthcare workers. The treatment, again, the mycenae gravis is, is very individualized. What I mean by that, a doctor, say, two similar patients may apply different treatment just based on how good or how well the person looks, uh, the comorbidities, whether the patient has other uh, medication or not. And uh, one person go to see two neuron specialists, the treatment plan may be different. Uh, it's, this is not a surprise. And uh, in most cases, the immunotherapy for mycenae gravis uh, are effective. This disease, we do not think it really shortened a person's lifespan that much anymore. Uh, the mortality rate, as our, to our estimation, is probably 1% or less. And the, uh, there is a risk of crisis, but uh, a myasthenia crisis does not occur overnight. I mean, you would not wake up um, at night and develop a shortness of breath and get into crisis. So, and uh, there are a lot of promising and uh, strong treatment that's going to be available. 
So, um, you know, for doctor-wise, this is this is a, a very gratifying disease to treat because the patient will almost always get better. Well, I appreciate it. I think the one thing I've learned is that if I was looking after myasthenic patients, it would be well worth having them see a specialist in the area uh, so that they can get regular updates for the management of their care. So, Yubing, as always, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much, Glenn. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.